one of the reasons we are in Matthew so long is because I believe it's very important to have context for what the Bible says. So many people read the Bible and they take the Bible out of context. And so one of the reasons we kind of work our way through is I want us to be like the Bereans. I want us to know what the text really says not even what you, I, I, I hope that you leave here and you go back and you investigate even further. Don't just take my word for it or your pastor's word for it. Go back, look at the scriptures to see if those things are true. This, this divine testimony we have is what Matthew's laying out uh, that Jesus was the divine king. His whole approach has meaning. It's not just some arbitrarily written letter that's haphazardly put together. He wrote this with a purpose and he starts off that the first really ten chapters are evidence. It's a testimony. Like if I were to put somebody on trial and when I was in the FBI, I would put them up on the stand and get them to testify and in hopes that the evidence they presented testimonially would convince the jurors that that this case is true. In the same way, Matthew lays out this. He starts off in chapter 1 with the genealogical evidence and the miraculous birth as a testimony that Jesus was the divine king. Then in chapter 2, he goes to fulfill prophecy. And he, he, he quotes the Old Testament prophets about these. There were over 300 prophecies, but uh, he only quotes a few of them, but they were fulfilled in Jesus' birth. Chapter 3, he, he shows the divine messenger that comes before him that was prophesied, this John the Baptist, who comes and prepares the way. But he also shows a, a divine affirmation from God when God himself says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased at his baptism. In chapter 4, he, he shows Jesus' power over Satan when Satan comes against him with a temptation. And, and, and then chapters 5, 6, and 7, he shows his teaching evidence that he actually exposits the law in the way the law was intended. And then chapters 8 and 9 shows his divine power evidence as he miraculously heals people. And then in chapter 10, we see his divine messengers sent out that have the same power that he showed. They go out, they cast out demons. They go out, they heal people. Why? Because they represent the divine king. So these first 10 chapters are really evidentiary in nature for, for the readers, the Jewish people. He's writing to Jewish people to show them all these things that you were taught growing up have been fulfilled in Jesus. Now chapters 11 and 12 show us the responses. And I think it's interesting that the first response we see comes from a believer. I mean, the first response that Matthew brings out is that John the Baptist, the very messenger who came and prepared the way, is struggling. And we have sometimes been communicated this message that you never are supposed to struggle with your faith. That it's just an understood thing and you believe it and, and if you struggle, you somehow are sinful in that. That you got a problem. Have you ever had anybody share that with you or communicate that to you? If you struggle, you're in sin. Now, that would go contrary to some of these things that I see in Scripture because there were several people struggled. Did God encourage them? Yes, He did. 
Did he admonish them? I don't really see admonishment in this passage today, which to me is one of the greatest passages on dealing with discouragement in your faith or struggling with your faith. Because we don't see John the Baptist struggling to believe that Jesus is sent from God. He's just struggling to believe that he understands things in the right way. And I think really, if we encapsulate what our struggle is as believers, I'm talking about people who really believe they struggle with understanding, well, why is this not working out in the way it, I think it? Maybe I don't have a right understanding. Is that true? Yeah. I think that's really sums up, and we're going to see that today. So here's the two things that really I hope that you'll walk away from here today with as we look at this passage, Matthew 11, 1 through 19. First, God encourages, God encourages and grows the faith of doubting believers. I mean, that should encourage us, right? That He encourages and grows the faith of doubting believers. But the second thing in this passage we're going to see is that He exposes the indifference of willful unbelief. He, 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 he always has a way of, of showing that people who are unwilling to believe always do so with some kind of ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. They, in other words, the, the hypocrisy or the lunacy of their unbelief is made evident, and he brings that out even in this passage today. You know, people will say, I, like I've had people I've talked to before, I don't believe in Jesus. Have you ever read the Bible? Parts of it. Well, have you not read the whole thing? Well, no, I'm not going to read it. I don't believe it. I'm like, well, how are you going to even have a chance to believe it if you've never even read it. Right. You know, I mean, and, and, but people that, but do you see the, how illogical that is? I don't believe it because I don't, I don't want to read it. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. You should at least have the intellectual, uh, you know, integrity to say, I've read it, therefore I, I, I read it and it, you know, I don't believe it. But most people will never make that argument, and we're going to see why as we look at this passage today. So let me read the passage, and we're going to come back, and we're going to look at these. And I hope when you leave today, you'll be encouraged in your faith. Starting in verse 1, chapter 11 of Matthew. Now when Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, I just want to stop before we go to verse 2 because verse 2 really through 19 is where this we're going to look at. But just to make a couple of quick observations. Jesus had sent them out. We saw that last week in chapter uh, 10. He sent them out and He told them to go where? Go to the lost sheep of Israel. So they are going in the areas of Galilee, but they're going to different places. Where does He go? He goes, it says, their cities. <laughs> And do you know where I believe their cities are? Because later in this passage, next week we're going to look at it. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. That's where Jesus spent the majority of His time teaching. And so He goes to their cities while they go all to these other little villages. I just think that's interesting. He sends them out and He lets them go out in twos and He doesn't go looking over their shoulder. We have a real micromanagement problem in the church today. There's no trust of people to go be doing stuff. And what happens, you know, 
you know, some of you guys who are in business, you may disagree with me, but I'm just, I'm not a business guy. I've been in the Marines and I've been in the FBI. That's my experience out in the world. But I'm telling you, in every realm that I see, and what I was taught in the Marine Corps, I've seen come to fruition, that micromanagement kills productivity. It absolutely kills productivity because it conveys a lack of trust. And, 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 and when Jesus sent them out, He let them go. He just let them go. And He goes, I'm going to go teach over here. You go do your thing. And then He debriefed them when He came back. I'm not saying they shouldn't have some oversight and debriefing, but He didn't go look over their shoulders to make sure they were just doing everything just right. Have you ever served under somebody who is like that? It's, it's, it's very hard. Because you, you're, you're so afraid that you're going to step out of line of what they would do and the way they would do it that you are not creative. You stifle your own creativity. And so Jesus sends them and then He goes and teaches in their city. Um, so, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by the, his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed, shade, a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered <laughs> violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. So, let's set the stage for what's going on with John. He's in prison. He's been in prison for about a year. Herod was afraid to kill him because the people held him up as a prophet. But remember what John preached back in Matthew 3 when he announced Jesus? Do you remember some of the things he said? What Was John preaching the grace of God when he was preaching at the river, in the Jordan River? He was preaching the judgment day of God, wasn't he? He was proclaiming 
to the people who had been entrusted with the Scriptures and the Torah. He was proclaiming God's judgment because they had turned their backs on God. They were not following God and He was proclaiming judgment. And He said, when Messiah comes, He's going to come and He's going to bring peace to everybody, right? Is that what He said? No, He said, He's going to bring an axe to the tree. He's going to burn up the chaff. That was symbolic of judgment. And so for John, he's preaching about this judgment that's coming because in the past, that was always the way God brought His people back, wasn't it? When the people of Israel went out, what did they do? They brought in the Chaldeans. They came into the north. The Babylonians came in from the south. They took them away. And, and then He saved a remnant out of that. Or He would, you know, whatever, the Assyrians, He would always bring judgment to the people. And this is what John's preaching. And now John's, you know, sees Jesus. He's known Him since He was a kid because they grew up with cousins. And he's thinking, okay, now he's here. Here's the voice. This is my son. He's going, all right, this is the time. And then what do we see happen in chapter 4 of Matthew? He's arrested. Herod takes him. He's preaching judgment against Herod. Why? Because Herod killed his brother, married his brother's wife. And he's preaching judgment and, and all of a sudden now he's thrown in prison. He's been in prison a year. Not some little prison. He had been God's prophet. He was out there pro, you know, prophesying that Messiah was coming. And now he's in a prison for a year and he's hearing about Jesus going about doing miracles. Word gets to him. And he's going, I don't understand this. He's healing people. He's not bringing judgment to people. He's, he's not proclaiming against Herod the way I was. I mean, I was up there. Those are the thoughts that have to be going through his head. And he's really wrestling with this. And, and, and so he sends back his messengers and he says, are you the one? Now, what is it that causes you to doubt what God's doing? Lack of knowledge. Often. A lack of knowledge? It's a... I, I think, but the thing that brings us to that 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 um, that point of wondering if we if we know what's right, if we have the lack of knowledge or we have good knowledge, is that a lot of times it's when we're placed into circumstances we can't explain, like a shooting in a school in South Florida or an elementary school. I'm sure there are many people questioning how a good and loving God would allow something like that. And, and people of faith are wrestling right now. You know, uh, you know I, I do everything right. Throughout history, you see missionaries. They go, and they're, they're going representing Almighty God, and their lives are taken before them. They're women. Like I read last week to you about that woman who was an evangelist in prison and raped multiple times. And, and so when you go through <clears throat> difficult times, and, and let's just be really candid. In, in America, we're fairly coddled as far as our faith goes, aren't we? I mean, we live in a land of plenty. Every person in this room has more than two shirts. You know, probably have at least two cars. Food for a month in our cupboard. At least, maybe not for us, but for other cultures, it'd feed them for a month, a whole family. We're very coddled. And a lot of times in the midst of blessing, 
we tend to be very um, uh, ungrateful. The, the Jewish people lived as in an agrarian culture. They depended on God every day and, and looked to Him for provision. But even they were taken away from this, this trust in Him when difficult circumstances came in. Why? If He's real, why does He allow this? And here's the thing that in, in looking through this, what I see is when John's struggling, he's being authentic. And what God desires in us people is an authentic faith. He doesn't want you just to believe because your parents told you it was the right thing to do. He doesn't want you to believe because some really slick preacher told you it was the right thing to do. He wants you to believe because it's an authentic, Spirit-led thing in your life where the Holy Spirit reveals to you and you know it doesn't mean you won't doubt. He's big enough to handle your questions. And what I love about this is whether it's Thomas who goes, I'm not believing until I see the holes. And he goes, okay, Thomas, come fill right there. There they are. You know, I know I wasn't here. You know, oh, I believe now, Lord. Well, blessed are those who don't see and believe. You know, but what I love about it is he, Thomas wanted to know and he shows him. And, and God is big enough to handle. He just really wants us to have an authentic faith. Struggles are okay. But here's the thing that we need to learn from John and, and how we deal with doubt. Where did he go to to deal with his doubt? He didn't turn to Google. <laughs> they didn't have Google. But I mean, he didn't, he didn't look to the culture is what I'm saying, did he? He went straight to the source. And, and when you have doubts, we go to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Struggles are okay, but we need to go to Jesus with our questions. Do you do that? Do you do that? Because I, I, I look throughout Scripture, even somebody as great as Elijah in the Old Testament, one minute he's calling down fire, consuming he's killing all these prophets of Baal you know he's going around and he's he's saying if you're with God stand with me and then they go and they wipe out these prophets of Baal and then the next minute he's running like a scared little baby from Jezebel you go really really you you just consume these 450 guys who were representing the, the, I mean, the people, you weren't afraid of the people riding, rising up because you're killing their priest, but you're going to run from this one lady. Why? Because even Elijah doubted. If, if maybe I, I did it the wrong way, or maybe I don't understand what's going to happen here. You know, or maybe, maybe I think I'm the only one <laughs> that really gets it. That's a bad place to be too, isn't it? <laughs> to think that you're the only one. You're the only one that understands. I'm the only one, God. And he goes, listen, I got thousands of people out there, Elijah. But he, but you go to the source. Go to Jesus. You know, I, I was thinking of James chapter one. Do you think James, the brother of Jesus, struggled with doubt? Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was on the cross, he asked John to take care of his mother, not James, his half brother. Because at that moment, where was James spiritually? James, his half-brother, was not where John was. And again, Jesus elevated the spiritual family over the biological family. But James chapter 1, 
Listen to this. Count it joy. Count it all joy. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How do you grow if you don't struggle? If you just believe and believe and believe without ever wrestling with stuff. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who? God. Guys, we have a problem sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, so I stand convicted with you, that so often when we go through a difficult time and struggle, instead of going to God, instead of going to His Word, I want to get everybody else's opinion. I want to call people I trust. Hey, what do you think? Well, then what do you think? And then what do you think? And I keep trying a lot of times to get somebody to give me the magic bullet answer, and there may not be a magic bullet answer. Because every time I come back to the Word, a couple things keep popping out to me. Trust His love. Trust His character. When I can't understand what's happening around me, trust God's love and trust His character. We like that immediate gratification of somebody giving us a magic bullet, what I call a magic bullet answer. Yeah, we want it. And when we don't have it, let's face it, it, when you're going through a difficult time, sometimes we don't, we're afraid to be exposed to God, but He loves our questions. Psalm 73, I said this last week, Asaph, struggling. God, why do the wicked prosper? And I do all these things right and I I suffer. I don't understand it. But when he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, then it made sense to him. It made sense in that he trusted God's love and His character. And he knew. Listen, God allowed His Son to be brutally tortured and murdered. Does that make sense to anybody in this room? There's no way you could put a a bow on that and make that presentable to anybody in any culture. And the fact that God would allow that, He loves His Son. He's, He's one with His Son. But He allowed Him to go through that. And the fact that He allows that, and He tells His disciples in chapter 10 what we saw last week, what does He tell them? He says, listen, you're going to go out and they're going to do this to you because they've done it to Me. If they do it to Me, they're going to treat you the same way. But somehow along the way, we've come to believe that that if we do everything right, then we're not going to have problems in life. I I, I would say that's a prevailing mindset. Yeah. My business, we call that mismanagement of expectations. (laughs) Yeah, a mismanagement of expectations is exactly right. Brad and I were talking about it yesterday, and we talked about it on the radio uh, and, and here last week, I mean, is that that the expectation that, J- that John the Baptist had here was that God was going to come and bring wrath and judgment and overturn the Roman rule and establish the Messianic kingdom. And, and I've said this before, if Jesus came today, would we even see Him? Because we have our own expectations today of what He is, what He's about. And a lot of it is not based on Scripture as much as it's based on some bad teaching that we've gotten, that we've held on to. Because we like a God we can control. There's a new book coming out, David, that David sent me, and 
David, there were some premises in there I didn't like about that they were talking about. But the gist of what I did like was that we've created our own version of Jesus and God in America. And that's why we have no cultural impact. Because we've created our own version instead of really going back to who the God of the Bible is and who the, the Jesus of the Bible is. You know, people say, well, my God wouldn't send somebody to hell. Well, that's because your God isn't the God of the Bible. Well, my God, my God loves everybody, and that's right. That's why He's got this big neon sign that says, Jesus, come all. can make it any clearer. Struggles are okay, but we have to go to the source. Uh, Paul in Philippians says this too, and then I'm going to go to the, to the next. And by the way, uh, not only do we go to the source, but our, our faith is strengthened how? By His Word and our experiences. So we have to go to His Word. And, and Paul, Paul understood this. And, and go to uh, Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Wait a minute, Lord, I got to rejoice when I just had a stroke? It doesn't say rejoice in the stroke or your circumstances. It says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In other words, no matter what you're going through, if you're His kid, He's there with you. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. Don't you hate it when all and anything and those kind of words are in Scripture? Because you just can't get around them. There's no ambiguity there, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, both your emotions and your thinking, in Christ Jesus. Paul says, take every thought captive. Listen, you're going to struggle. You're going to have issues. But I love what he does here with John. You know what he does? The other account of this is over in Luke chapter 7, or 7.20. Look at this. The same account where John's struggling, just given from Luke's perspective. And it says, And when the men had come to him and said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, so at that moment, He healed many people of disease and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And He answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. What you've seen and what you've heard. Our faith is strengthened by His Word and our experiences. Out of faith. The problem with a lot of people in this country is they don't have a willingness to listen to His Word and then they don't experience the authenticity of a faith experienced out in their life every day. And so the reason 95% of the people in American church don't share the Gospel with people is because they don't have an experience to tell people about. They don't live by faith. So how in the world can they go tell somebody to believe somebody they haven't even really believed in themselves? 
And listen, it doesn't mean that everybody's operating at the same level of faith. You see all kinds of different levels of faith in Scripture. But even the man in Mark who says, Lord, will you heal my son? And Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, this, he comes out by faith. And what does he say? Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus heals the guy's son. That guy never forgot that experience. He had little faith. Jesus said, if you have just this uh, a mustard seed, I've got a, a can of mustard seeds at home. Those things are tiny. They're smaller than a BB. And Jesus says, if you have that much faith, because it's not the, the amount of your faith, it's the object of your faith that Jesus is concerned with. The, the, the faith is in Him. It's not, and, and, and I think, unfortunately, what's happened in America is a lot of people have faith in what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't call you just to believe in what He did on the cross. He called for you to believe in Him as a person who died on the cross for your sins to pay the penalty for your death so that you could be in relationship with Him, a living God sitting at the right seat of the Father in heaven. And so, he tells him, he quotes right here Isaiah chapter 35, and he quotes Isaiah 61. And the reason he's doing that, 35, 5, 61, 1, is he's telling, one, he does the miracles, and then he takes them back to the messianic prophecies and says, Go tell John, this is what you see. You know what I tell people when I'm sharing the gospel? I, I just had a guy this past weekend come down. Uh, I've shared his story in here before. I met him 20 years ago in Kazakhstan. I'm over there preaching. I'm preaching the gospel. And uh, at the evening, we go out and we go to a restaurant. I meet this guy who tells me he sells sin. You remember that guy? Henry was a cigarette and vodka broker in Kazakhstan when I'm there on a mission trip. Not many Westerners there. So we have a conversation. And I, I end up sharing the gospel with him. And he says, you know what? I... Uh, I'm just not there, Doug. I say, I'm going to pray for you, Henry, because the circumstances of how God put our lives together, not just being here in Kazakhstan, but after I shared with him, or after I met him initially, we were the only two English speakers on a Russian plane to Moscow from Almaty, Kazakhstan, sitting next to each other. Now, what are the chances of that happening? So for five hours, we conversed. We get to Moscow... He buys me lunch because he wants to know more. And I tell him, but at the end of the day, I'm just not ready. So I give him my card. I come back to the States. <clears throat> Two months later, I'm in Columbus, Georgia at a Franklin Graham crusade, sitting up in a section with really not a lot of people up there, but one old lady sitting next to me who is Henry's mother's friend. <laughs> And she's asking me questions about my ministry and I tell her I'm in Russia. And when I tell her I'm in Russia, she's like, well, I, I have a good friend whose son is over in that part of the world. And I said, really? And I said, where are you from? And she told me her hometown. And I said, would your friend be named Chloe? Because Henry had told me his mother's name. And this lady turned white as a ghost, man. She was like... <laughs> But you know what? <clears throat> Two days later at 5 a.m. in the morning, I get a phone call from Henry. There's some weird stuff going on. 
And there have been at least four or five times in the years after that where Henry would be thinking about me or something I said, and the phone would ring and be me calling. Hey, Henry. How are you? How are you? He was here this past weekend, and all he did was talk about this stuff. Because he says, I struggle up here. I don't have what you're doing down there. He listens to SWAT radio every day. He says, Doug, that has helped me get off of the road and here. Why? Because he's hungry for teaching. He's hungry to experience this stuff. And he is seeing it. And now he has a son, he has a daughter, and he said, Doug, it's a miracle I didn't die over in Kazakhstan. But God had a plan and He's unfolding it. But He dealt with Henry's doubt. He can deal with your doubt. And He loves encouraging. The question for us is, when we struggle, do we go to Him and say, God, help me. Show me. That's what I told Henry. That's what I tell everybody. Ask God to show you Himself. He'll do that. That's what He says. Well, He goes on from there and He he exposes the indifference. And I wanted to spend a whole lot more time on that first part because I think that's really important. This, this next part, he exposes the indifference of those who have willful unbelief. Here's the thing. Verses 7-9, through nine, you see people that are curious, but they're not convicted. He says, listen, did you go out to see this reed shaking in the wind? He uses three questions to expose that the fact that they wanted to go see John And he kind of affirms John's character because some of the people might be going, well, if John the Baptist, this great prophet is struggling, maybe this stuff isn't real. And he goes, John was not some wavering guy. He was not some reed shaken by the moral sways of the culture. He was bold. No, he wasn't. You didn't go out to see somebody like that. There are plenty of those kind of people. He said, you didn't go out to see somebody in king's clothing who's some king messenger who's who's ready to do whatever the most money's going to pay them to do. That's not who you went out to see. He was wearing prophet's clothes. He was living in the wilderness. He goes, you went to see a prophet. And not only a prophet, he was the greatest prophet. He was the greatest human being born, not by his talents or abilities, but by his calling and the message that he had. He was the one who actually prepared the way. And he quotes Malachi. He was Elijah. Jesus makes it very clear here. He was Elijah that was prophesied. He would have been that Elijah had you believed. But because you didn't believe, there's going to be another Elijah that comes. And that's what he's saying. So they were curious but not convicted. It makes me think of Acts chapter 8, Simon the Magician. Boy, he saw this power going on. He gave his life to, to Christ, supposedly. And he's like, I want that power that I just saw. And Peter rebukes him. I don't think he was a believer. I think he was a false believer. Peter, Peter's rebuke is strong there. But that's what it reminds There's a lot of curious people, but they're not convicted. And then he goes on to tell about John, how great he was. His message and call was what made him great, but... He, he exposes there are people who are aware of the truth, but they don't accept it. And just real quick, Romans 1, um, 18-23, you know what that is. Look, you've got it all around you, you can see, but you refuse to acknowledge it. 
John 3.19 tells us why. 19 and 20. Why people don't acknowledge it. You don't receive the light because you're, you're works of evil. You want to wallow in darkness. You know what, Doug? I'd like to believe, but you know what? I just like to smoke. <laughs> I don't want to have to give that up. Another guy. I like to gamble. I don't want to give that up. Another guy. I like to drink. I, I don't want to give that up. See, if you are afraid of what you might have to give up, you don't really understand what you're gaining. You don't. There's nobody in their sane mind would sit there and say, I want to smoke a cigarette rather than have eternal life. Nobody. But the enemy blinds us to the truth. And so he exposes that here. That's why, people. And then the last thing, 16 through 19. Why do you think he throws in this little thing about the kids dancing? It's just a, it's, it's, it's a reiteration of this stuff. He says, you know what? John the Baptist came doing it this way, and you rejected him. I come doing it a different way. You reject me because the truth is, you don't want it either way. You're just spoiled little kids. That's what he, he uses that children terminology. You're, you're fascinated by him, by Jesus. They're fascinated by him, but they have no faith in him. They're fascinated by him, but they have no faith. And I think of John 10:26. My sheep hear my voice. They're not a sheep. They don't want to be sheep. They're like the people in John 6. When in John 6, you know, there was a group of people in John 6 that wanted to make him king. Why? Because he fed their bellies. Remember that? John chapter 6? He fed the 5,000. All these people wanting to make him king. Yes, this is the one. This is the one. He said, The only reason you're following me is because I fed your belly. They, they saw it. But they didn't really want that true relationship with God. So here's the thing. God grows the faith of doubting believers. But He exposes the faith of the skeptics. And there is no faith there, is there? They don't want to believe. And understand this, that the reason people don't want to believe has nothing to do with lack of information. You've got to understand that. It's not. C.S. Lewis said it, didn't he? It's not a matter of the information. It's a matter of what? I don't want to not be captain of my ship. <laughs> That's the ultimate thing. I want to be able to do what I want to do. So, remember what we said last week? When you go out and people receive the message you give, they receive Jesus. They receive God. When they reject that, they reject Him. God's going to expose people that really don't believe but for people that really are seeking like Henry, he's going to continue to bring information. And it's our job to just continue to point them to the Word and to trust in him. Yeah, Max. Well, I just was curious. Uh, uh, in the translation that you just read, verse 12, could you read me it and just comment on that? It's a very strange verse. Yeah, verse 12, Matthew 11. 12. Okay. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. That, what that means is that he's saying from the time John started, there's been violence against this message, against, this, against the coming of the Messiah. And the fact that John the Baptist is in prison kind of amplifies that. And they're going to continue, he's saying, 
to bring violence against it. And, and so there's suffering associated with this message. It always will be. It's just the idea of suffering being associated with following him. And he was saying since John the Baptist, he's talking about John in this context. John's in prison, he's struggling, and he's, he's just saying there's going to be suffering and violence associated with this. And look at it. Why do people violently resist Christianity? Why do they beat Christians? People who aren't doing anything physically necessarily to overthrow governments. They're brutal to them. And I think it's just exhibiting what he's saying. Right, because it, it, I, I have different translation and it said the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. But your, your thought reinforces that, that the advancement comes through the suffering. Yeah, as you go through this suffering, you keep... You have to struggle through it, which goes back to the very first thing that we're dealing with is doubt. Think about a butterfly. Think about a, a, how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. If he doesn't struggle, there's no butterfly, right? You, you've got to have the struggle to really have a strong faith. What Jesus is saying is that we, we press on. We press on. Yeah, there's no shortcuts. No, there isn't. And there's no superficiality yeah. to believe. So I hope that you're encouraged that it's okay to struggle, but go to the Bible and go to Jesus and say, show me, help me. And I promise you, that's the prayer that He wants to answer, the knock that He wants to open the door to. That's the one. And so here's the two questions as you leave. Are you struggling with your faith at what God may be doing in your life? Where are you looking for your answers? Where are you looking for your answers? Are you looking to Jesus and His Word? And second, are you, like these people, disregarding God's truth? And if so, why? Why do you not receive the truth that He gives to you? Well, I, I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging passage for me as I think through because there are times I can honestly say that I don't necessarily struggle to believe that Jesus is my Savior, to believe that Jesus is my Lord. But I can say that when I was in India and my wife got a call that my daughter was getting a heart transplant, why? Why, God, couldn't it have been one week earlier when I was there with Him? Or one week later when I was home? And why when my wife called and you know the doctor says her heart's not doing good, Unbeknownst to me, her heart wasn't working, the new heart in her. And I'm crying out to God in ways that I've never cried out. And it didn't occur to me until afterwards that maybe God wanted me to cry out to Him in ways that I never had before. And so, is it? What is it that is causing us to struggle? And where are we seeking our answers from? Um, Dave, will you close our time in prayer?